Hey everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Got a great interview show for you this week. We're talking with Elliot Harmon from the EFF. Uh, ran into Elliot last year at a tech conference. I've been trying to get him on ever since. Uh, busy guy. And uh, thankfully, finally got him on to talk about the... Um, what's called the FOSTA or the SESTA bills. Uh, now, FOSTA was Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, and SESTA was Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act. They sort of got combined and, and, and were passed in the form of FOSTA, and we're going to talk about that today with Elliot. Now, of course, you know, how could you go wrong with the bill about stopping sex trafficking, right? Well, you can. <laughs> the devil, as always, is in the details. And and while it's obviously a good thing to stop sex trafficking, you know, online or otherwise, um, you know, how you go about doing that uh, is important. And if you're not careful, you can go too far and you can, with the best intentions, uh, go the wrong way. And uh, that is EFF's position on this particular bill. And so we're going to talk with Elliot all about that and get into the nitty gritty details. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's bring on Elliot. All right, and we are here with Elliot Harmon. He's the Associate Director of Activism at the EFF, one of my favorites. Uh, he advocates for free speech and the right to innovate online with a particular emphasis on patents, copyright, open access, and intermediary liability. Welcome, Elliot. Hi, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me. And we've got a, we've got kind of a, I don't know, it's not a fun thing to discuss, but it's an important thing to discuss, uh, and it's a lot of interesting issues for this. So what we're going to talk about today is the uh, the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, which is FOSTA, uh, which was recently passed by Congress. And uh, so before we get into that, let's let's go back a little bit in history. First of all, if you wouldn't mind, you know, kind of explain, you know, what 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 is sex trafficking trafficking what is it we're trying to fix and then what was what was the law of the land prior to this i believe it was section 230 mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so yeah thanks for that introduction and of course it's always important to start a conversation like this by saying that yes sex trafficking is a serious problem and indeed it is because sex trafficking is a serious problem, that there is a real uh, danger in passing a law that does more harm than good. Mm -hmm. uh, serious problems call for serious and well-thought-out solutions. Uh, but in answer to that question, and that that is important to, to talk about exactly what, what we're talking about when we say sex trafficking, um, <clears throat> Sex trafficking is defined in federal criminal law as prostitution. It defines it a little more specifically, but we're talking about exchanging sex acts for money that takes place as a result of force, fraud, or coercion, hmm. uh, uh, or in which the the sex worker or prostitute is, is under 18. Hmm. Um, and so that's a really important kind of distinction yeah. to make that'll come up a bit later that we're, we're not only talking about prostitution um, and indeed prostitution is not illegal under under federal law uh, though though it, it is it is illegal under state law in uh. well in in every state except with the kind of half exception of Nevada right so what we're really talking about here is is sex trafficking um, <clears throat> there has been over the past few years, um, a lot of focus and attention on sex trafficking that takes place on the internet, which is really to say, uh, like advertisements online for sex work, um, in, in which there's potentially a victim of trafficking involved. 
to understand what uh, Cesta is or Fosta, whatever you prefer to call mm-hmm. it, um, you need we need to go back a little bit and talk about a law called Section 230. Um, Section 230 has a really interesting history, and I, I, I think about this a lot because the the debate that led to Section 230 t- took place when I was a teenager, and I was kind of <laughs> first starting to think about free speech and starting to think about civil liberties issues. In 1996, Congress passed this thing called the Communications Decency Act, a, a law that put a bunch of restrictions on uh, distribution of pornography and other kinds of adult material on the internet. There was, leading up to Congress passing CDA, there were lots of people in the tech community saying you are passing a law that is, one, going to be unenforceable, two, is probably unconstitutional, (laughs) um, and three, is going to do a lot more harm than good to this burgeoning uh, internet industry. At around the same time, two members of the House of Representatives, Representative Chris Cox and Representative Ron Wyden, who is still in Congress, but he's in the Senate now, they introduced a bill called the Internet Freedom and Family Empowerment Act. And they, they introduced it as an alternative to the CDA, saying that this would be a better solution to the CDA to the potential problem of, of teenagers being able to access pornography, for example. Mm. What Section 230 essentially does is it shields online platforms from uh, liability for for things that their users say and do. So I go, let's say, for example, I go onto Reddit and I say something that is illegal, that is that is libelous, for example. Mm-hmm. Section 230 says, don't sue Reddit, sue me as the person who right. said that illegal thing. Now, I said a minute ago that it was originally introduced as an alternative to to uh, to the CDA. The reason for that is because of what was going on in online spaces at the time, w- while CDA was kind of in the process of being passed. There, you know, this is we have to go back to the '90s. So this is right. the days of those old platforms like CompuServe and Prodigy. Prodigy, and those were the two that kind of led to some of this stuff, right? Exactly, exactly. So courts were treating Prodigy and CompuServe differently from Mm -hmm. each other when it came to liability for their users' speech because Prodigy advertised itself as deleting certain messages for for quote-unquote offensiveness or or bad taste. At the time, Prodigy kind of advertised itself as the more Mm family-friendly alternative. Mm -hmm. Um, So courts were saying that because Prodigy was doing some kind of... uh, very early version of what we'd now think of filtering, mm-hmm. that it could be held liable for things that its users uh, did. <laughs> that it was not only this kind of neutral pipe for content, but it was actually the publisher of that content. Right. So ironically, if they had done nothing at all, like like CompuServe, they were clean. But it's, but the, given the fact they tried to do something but didn't do it the way the congressman wanted to, that's where they fell short, or that's where the, that's where they got into trouble. Yeah, yeah. There's this great, I don't know if you uh, have like links that go along with each episode of the podcast. Mm-hmm. There's this there's this great video you can find uh, with former Representative Cox kind of telling the story of why he introduced the 
Internet Freedom and Family Empowerment Act. And he talks about reading about the prodigy opinion on an airplane and just thinking that it was surpassingly stupid (laughs) and that if we wanted uh, web platforms to do anything in terms of trying to maintain a healthy community, etc., they would not be able to do it with this fear of liability hanging over their heads. So that's what Section 230 is. And there's a couple of important things to point out about it. Um, One is that it does not uh, shield platforms from liability under federal criminal law. The thinking is that 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 is the appropriate venue if a platform is somehow uh, neglectful in a way that it directly contributes to unlawful activity happening on its platform, uh, that the the venue for dealing with that, because it's on the internet, it's not in a specific state, Mm. um, is is in federal criminal law. And there are some other there are some other exceptions to it, too, that that we we might come back to if they if they come up, but I'll I'll keep moving now. So that's what Section 230 is, and it's really hard to understate how important Section 230 is to the way that the internet works today. You know, think of how much of the conversation that you have online, how much of, you know, what you spend your time on the internet doing is through some kind of third-party platform, be it Twitter or Facebook or even, you know, a message board that your friend runs somewhere um, or, or some kind of uh, platform that you're using to host your podcast episodes on, mm-hmm. be it SoundCloud or wherever right. it is. For better or worse, today's internet is one in which we rely all of the time on these online intermediaries that none of that would have developed in the way that it would, or at least it would have developed pretty differently if we didn't have section 230 for the simple reason that platforms would be so afraid of, of criminal liability of civil liability for things that their users do frankly investors would be so afraid of investing in those internet startups that could potentially lead to somebody paying thousands of dollars in fines or even winding up in jail um that just we wouldn't the internet would look a lot less like the internet that we think of today and a lot more one directional uh you know a lot more websites where it's kind of the staff of that website providing uh, things for us to look at, but there's not a whole lot of opportunities for interaction. So that actually sounds a lot, now that you express it that way, it sounds a lot like the copyright issues that we've had uh, where mm-hmm. they've tried to, you know, well, take down notices and things, and that seems to have gone kind of in a similar way where the service that provides the, 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 the hosting is the one that gets caught up in this if they don't, you know, respond properly or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of think of those two laws um, as as kind of uh, sibling laws. They passed around the same time. Section 230 passed in 1996 and the DMCA passed in 1998, I think. And although the DMCA is far from perfect, it's very flawed law in a number of ways, uh, it's the same thing. It allows platforms to exist without this huge fear of, of liability for copyright infringement by their users. Um, and we can, we can come back to that, too, because I think that that 
story of the kind of similarities between the DMCA and Section 230. I think that there's something to glean from that story about uh, why some of the companies that supported SESTA supported it. Mm. Um, but first, let's actually talk about what, what SESTA does. What was missing in 230? What, why, did the, why did our government feel the need to go a step further and what did they do? Um, so, of course, I would argue that there was nothing missing in 230, but uh, here is what the, what the law does. One, it creates new criminal liability uh, for sex trafficking. So the, the statute that defines sex trafficking, it added some language to it saying that platforms could be held liable in, in federal criminal court uh, for advertisements related to sex trafficking. And what's really kind of uh, upsetting about the way that it is phrased is that it's actually phrased so broadly mm. that it looks like platforms could be swept in even if they're not actually aware of, of trafficking taking place on their sites. Um, that's the first thing that it does. The second thing is that it opens platforms to both criminal and civil liability uh, at, at the state level. Like I, like I said a bit ago, part of how Section 230 works is that it, is that it exempts platforms for liability at the, at the state level under the thinking that federal criminal court is, is, is the appropriate place to handle those cases. But now we have new criminal and civil liability at the, at the state level. Uh, for uh, crimes related to sex trafficking. And then the third thing that it does is it creates kind of this whole new criminal legal regime relating to prostitution. So I said a minute ago that prostitution isn't really covered by federal criminal law. Uh, so this this changes now with, with SESTA-FOSTA. It specifically, it, uh, it covers companies or individuals who use the internet to, quote, promote or facilitate prostitution, end quote. And then the other thing that it does, creepily enough, is <laughs> it changes the law retroactively. Oh, geez. Uh, so a platform could be held uh, liable for something that happened years before the law was passed. Wow. <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> yeah, and we're we're pretty sure it's unconstitutional. But when you look at all of those measures together, and you look at the effect that all of them are going to have on kind of the internet ecosystem, it 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 seems pretty clear what's going to happen is you're going to es essentially incentivize platforms to over censor their users, and you know the whole way that modern platform moderation works is complicated. And, you know, in the big sites like Twitter and Facebook, it's often, in my understanding, a combination of some kind of algorithmic filtering um, as well as uh, hand review by individuals that are, that are paid by the company. And so it's, it's a kind of a complicated mix. But under SESTA-FOSTA, what we're really afraid of is that you're going to see them start erring on the side of censorship. That whenever something comes up that could maybe be legal or could maybe be illegal, you're going to start seeing them opting on the side of closing things down. And that concerns us for a lot of different reasons. Anytime you're essentially incentivizing uh, the, the removal of potentially legal speech, that's a problem. Right. But it's also a problem when you look at 
who is most likely to be silenced under under that kind of under that kind of policy and unfortunately we think that a lot of the people most likely to be silenced are the people that the bill was kind of intended to help Right, and that brings up. So, yeah, let's let's talk about a little about uh, um, who was for and who was against and why. Because there's a lot of people on different sides of this. That when I was doing some research on this, it, there's quite the quite the mix of opinions and from some interesting sources. So mm-hmm. let's let, look, let's look at the pro side first. And just from a you know, uh, first of all, this thing passed 388 to 25 in the House and 97 to two in the Senate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was you know, it had huge bipartisan support. And from a purely devil's advocate perspective. Sex traffic is bad, you know, so I, I could see why some people might argue, you know, yes, we as democracy have freedoms, but we can vote away some of those freedoms if we feel that it does greater good by stopping something evil. So I don't know, is that where that came from? Like, why, you know, why do you think there was such huge bipartisan support for these bills? That's a really good question. And I, I think, you know, let's just be very honest. It is it is hard for a member of Congress to oppose a bill. <laughs> with that name right you, you know i there were a number of private discussions of folks saying that they actually wished that that was not the bill that they were voting on <laughs> um you know the, yeah. you can read some of the rumors about those kinds of discussions online i think that we always kind of knew that our best chance of stopping this thing would be before it got to a vote. You mentioned that 97 to two in the Senate. And that of course is extremely dramatic. Yeah. Um, I always like, I always mention this to people when they ask questions about like, Oh, was this a Trump thing or like what party was behind this? Yeah. It wasn't a partisan thing at all. And you can you can see that when you look at who the two people in the Senate who voted against it were. The two people who voted against it were Ron Wyden, who we talked about a yeah. minute ago, and Rand Paul. Mm. Uh, you know, on a lot of economic and and kind of uh, other sorts of policy issues, those two would be very far apart from each yeah. other. Um, but they, for a long time, they've kind of been the free speech wing of the Senate. Now, there were some tech companies that actually backed this, too, and I, and I think it was kind of a mix, but like Oracle, and I think there was another one that came out and, and, and voiced uh, support for this. But it, it, the kind of the take on that I, I heard was that it was for big companies, it was maybe something that they could weather, and it was the issue there was a lot of smaller companies would not be able to handle this sort of regulation, and so it would kind of stifle competition because incumbents would just would have the pockets and the lawyers to kind of deal with it where the other ones wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. It's it's worth kind of looking at the the timeline and and what it, and who who endorsed it when. The the first two tech companies that I know about endorsing it were Oracle, you mentioned, as as well as IBM. Those are of course two very big tech companies. They're also tech companies that don't rely a whole lot on Section Two Thirty. Mm. Um, they're they're for lack of a better term, they are the more old-fashioned tech companies, the ones whose business models kind of existed before 230 passed. Yeah, when you look at the letter that Oracle wrote endorsing SESTA slash FOSTA, they seem to be essentially saying that this is a solvable problem, that it is very easy to use... <laughs> 
automated filters oh in such a way that only remove the bad guys and <sighs> don't remove any of the good guys. And anybody who seriously, you know, studies uh, platform moderation knows that that is not true. Right. Um, there's here's a line from their letter: Any startup has access to low cost and virtually unlimited computing power <laughs> to advanced analytics, artificial intelligence, and filtering. Oh my. <laughs> it almost seems like this weird sales pitch, kind of. Of no, oh, just all of the startups just have to license this this, this right, and then they'll be fine. Um, so anyway, those were the first two big tech companies that came out in support of it, and then it wasn't until a couple of months later uh, that the Internet Association endorsed the the bill. For people who don't know, the Internet Association is this huge trade lobbyist organization that like. All of the big internet companies are members of Twitter, Facebook, Google, Amazon, just kind of all of them. And that was, to a lot of people, including me, that was kind of a surprising and sad day when the Internet Association endorsed the bill. There are some, I don't even necessarily want to point to this stuff because I don't personally know. If you do some Googling, you can find some articles that kind of get into the gossip of which companies were behind the endorsement, mm. which ones weren't. But here's here's the ultimate bottom line here, just like you said a second ago. These companies are not the ones that are going to be hit hardest. They are the companies that can afford the the best, as it were, in terms of filtering software, and then also have lots of people on staff. They're frankly the companies with the legal budgets right. that one of these lawsuits would not completely take them down. Right. Um, you know, if I were a little more cynical, I would say <laughs> that they were uh, that they saw endorsing Sesta Fosta as pulling up the ladder and and essentially. <laughs> making it impossible for new companies ever to compete with them. Wow. All right. So so now let's talk about some of the diverse folks that came out against us. So one of them I got to mention right off the top was the Department of Justice. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. came out and said that it would, uh, I think basically the summary was it would be hard to prosecute, harder to prosecute offenders and it would may actually be unconstitutional. So maybe address yep. that one. Uh, yeah, they said that it would be unconstitutional uh, because of the, the ex post facto clause in the Constitution, which says that you can't uh, pass a law mm. making something illegal that was – that was uh, sure. you can't pass a law and then prosecute people who did something retroactively yeah. that would have broken that law. That's in the Constitution. Um, they also said I, – I don't have the letter in front of me, but if I remember correctly, they, they also – essentially said that the section of the law dealing with prostitution was so broad that it would essentially create cases that the Department of Justice had no real interest in pursuing, hmm. um, that, that, that they had no interest in prosecuting a, a sex worker who was who had created a website to to advertise their services online that they just they they did not see that as being under under their purview right so another group that came out i guess that was uh i'd never heard of this before i researched this freedom network usa which i guess is an organization that works against trafficking but they were also against the bill well, and I'm glad you mentioned them. And there's actually several groups that that fight trafficking that that came out against this um, Freedom Network USA, as well as the Sex Workers Outreach Project. These are 
frankly, the organizations that have the most experience uh, kind of directly working with the sex worker community, including victims of trafficking, were largely against this bill. And I want to be really clear about something. I'm, I don't claim to be an expert in sex trafficking at all. Uh, I've learned quite a bit about it in the past year, but I, it's not my area of expertise. That said, I have talked with a number of experts um, who have told me that, one, that this bill is going to do more harm than good, um, and two, have told me some of the really horrifying stories of what happens when sex workers, including victims of trafficking, lose these, these online resources that they rely on. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and obviously, uh, EFF has come out against this as well. Um, is there anything, in addition to the, the, the objections that we've raised so far from, from other companies, does EFF have any further objections to, uh, to the FOSTA-SESTA bills? When it really comes down to it, our objections are pretty simple. We think that Section 230... Uh, one is is not broken. There is no need to fix it, um, and it has allowed the internet that we all know and love today to develop. We fundamentally think that any measure to shift more liability to online platforms for things that their users say brings with it a huge risk of silencing certain people from the internet. And it is often the case that when platforms kind of choose to clamp down on speech, when they, as I said a minute ago, when they kind of err on the side of censorship, when they put all of the, all of the gray areas into the delete pile, um, the, the people who are most likely to be silenced by those decisions uh, are are people who are marginalized in other aspects of society too? Sure. So since it since it went into effect in April, so it's been I don't know four months. It has been a, a really long time. But it, have we seen any real world real world effects of this? Like for instance, I know that Craigslist stopped their personal ads um, mm-hmm. because they I, they said right on their website that we're not doing this anymore because after this law, we don't feel we can we we could do it we yeah, were subject to too much liability i guess is it have there been any other effects have we have we seen some of these negative effects that we thought might be happening is there has it been long enough to see any real output yet that was a, definitely a striking moment when craigslist removed it, its personal ad site um and i think that honestly that was kind of a wake up call for a lot of people of of what we're really dealing with here what proponents of the bills kind of said from the beginning is that its effect on the internet was going to be very precise and was just going to remove specific things whereas i think what we saw with craigslist is is that it it its effect on the internet isn't a scalpel it's a hammer <laughs> um so that was a big one there have been from Right around the time that th- that the bill passed the Senate, and for about a month afterward, there was quite a string of um, the big web companies 
changing their policies relating to adult content or seemingly changing the way that they were enforcing policies related to mm. adult content. This this includes actually Microsoft adding a bunch of rules relating to obscene material on Skype and on the Xbox network and things. Um, and I think that there were some similar changes at Google too. It's very it's difficult to directly attribute those to to mm. Sesta Fosta, um, but but I think it's likely that 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 they were the the impetus there or at least an impetus. But I want to point out another change that does not affect me and probably doesn't affect most of your listeners, but it gets to this problem of who's really most victimized by the law. One of the, as I've learned by talking with these various experts in trafficking, um, one of the resources that sex workers really rely on that's kind of considered one of the big harm reduction resources among sex workers uh, is what's referred to as bad date lists, uh, mm. which are which are lists online of people, uh, men, um, who are dangerous, uh, mm. who, who are going to try to hurt you, um, who are, you know, <laughs> who are any number of bad things. So it's like a John's uh, rating list. Yeah, yeah. And one of the most popular of these bad date lists is a site called Verify Him. And the site still exists, but it's been essentially gutted. They've mm. removed all of the all of the kind of interactive features from it. And I think again that that goes to the the real risks of doing more harm than good when you're talking about a bill that so directly affects a marginalized population. Well, yeah. So I guess we'll probably—I'm sure the jury's still a little bit. And we'll have to see that you know how this kind of goes. But so let, let's draw this to a close a little bit. So it sounds like my guess is that EFF's position basically on this is that we didn't need this to begin with. Everything was okay prior to that. If you know, so the the obvious step forward somehow would be if we could repeal this bill. I don't know if there's anything else you might suggest. Like if we repeal this, is there still were there, were there still holes in the original 230 law that we, that still should have been plugged, or is there a better way? Could we just tweak the bill? Uh, and maybe this might be a time if you want to brought, bring back the uh, the analogy, the the parallelism with uh, copyright. Maybe you could throw mm -hmm, that in there too. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so yeah, let's talk about the copyright thing here quick because it's kind of an important side note. As you as you mentioned near the beginning of this interview, the platform liability for copyright infringement is is handled by this law called the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and it provides uh, certain things that somebody who runs an online platform needs to do uh, in order to avoid being held liable for, for copyright infringement uh, done by its users. Uh, so there are various things that a platform needs to do uh, in order to comply with the DMCA and to enjoy the, the protection from liability that the DMCA offers. Um, and kind of the most important one of those is participating in this thing called the notice and takedown system. Basically how notice and takedown works is let's say that you post something on Facebook that I think infringes my copyright. Uh, there's a process whereby I can tell Facebook to remove that infringing content. And, and then you have the choice 
to to file a counter notice um, after which I either have to sue you for copyright infringement uh, or or the content goes back up. This is not a perfect system. It's a flawed system in a number of ways, but there are a bunch of lobbyists right now trying to make it worse. Um, there's a pretty strong interest in what I would broadly call Hollywood, you know, the film industry mm-hmm. and the music industry, to make it a requirement of safe harbor status that a platform has to use an automated filter to recognize copyright infringement. Mm. And this causes a lot of the same problems that we were just talking about a minute ago uh, with with trying to use an automated filter to detect sex trafficking content. Computers aren't that good. Computers can't recognize a lot of context and nuance. Right. Uh, they can work as a kind of aid to human review, but when you create a law that essentially forces you to rely on the computer, mm. uh, you're you're actually kind of giving up a little bit of what's really important about the fair use doctrine. So what's interesting is that a lot of those same groups that have been that have been lobbying for a kind of filter everything system, companies like Disney and 20th mm-hmm. Century Fox, they also came out to endorse Sesta Fosta. Um, which it's like it's weird that they would even be involved with endorsing <laughs> bills because what like what stake do they have in those i think it's possible that they see these bills as a step toward Mm. what they really want which is an internet in which everything is filtered and i'm not even saying that necessarily that they're being extremely devious about it i'm seeing it more in terms of like a when all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail right they're they've gotten it so drilled into their heads that online filters are the solution to everything that they that they're going to keep endorsing these laws that create a more filtered internet to your other question about you know what's going to happen next or how people can get involved yeah unfortunately i don't think that this is the last time uh, that you're going to see Congress trying to take a bite out of Section 230. There have been a number of hearings in Congress in the last couple of months, including the famous one a few months ago with Mark Zuckerberg, uh, where members of Congress have, in some cases, flat out said incorrect things about Section 230, uh, or in other cases said things like, well, SESTA-FOSTA worked so well, we should also <laughs> do SESTA-FOSTA for terrorism. Um, mm. or, or, or we should also do SESTA-FOSTA for misinformation and fake news. So, unfortunately, I think that this might be just the beginning of a very long fight that is uh, potentially going to redefine uh, how the internet works. So, to your question of what your listeners can do to get involved... Your listeners are the solution in a lot of ways because they're the geeks. Uh, (laughs) They're the people who actually understand 
why these kind of mandatory filtering proposals are dangerous, who understand that technology isn't just this sort of black box that you can use to solve all of the world's problems. And I, and I suspect, I would imagine that a lot of them are the people who rely on these protections, who, who rely on DMCA 512, who rely on, on Section 230 for their livelihoods. They are the people who members of Congress really, really need to hear from. Um, so I would encourage anyone listening to this who's kind of interested in, in continuing to be a part of this fight to go to EFF.org and sign up for our newsletter. Um, and we will, when when the next big threat comes along, we will tell you and we will tell you <laughs> involved. Um, and the one other thing that I, I should have mentioned earlier um, is we're right now in the process of, of litigating uh, SESTA-FOSTA. We have filed a lawsuit uh, on behalf of a number of clients uh, in order to have the law declared unconstitutional. Um, and you can also get updates on that if you sign up for our newsletter. Awesome. Well, that's great, great advice. And uh, thanks again for coming on. It was a really important discussion. And, and it, I, you know, when you see these things on the news, they give it, you know, one or two minutes if you're lucky. <laughs> and they just can't, you know, get to these kind of nuances and get to the depth. So I really enjoy you coming on and talking to us and really digging down into this and explaining why it's such a big issue. Thank you so much, Carrie. This has been a really fun discussion. All right. Take care. You too. Many, many thanks to Elliot for coming on and telling us all about the uh, the FOSTA SESTA bills and and uh, why they were, despite being um, uh, obviously the the hearts are in the right place, they didn't really go about it the right way, and it unfortunately may end up causing more harm than good. So we already actually had plenty of protections in place to to address this. I'm not really sure why uh, our government felt the need to you know kick it up a notch and in the process and may end up doing more harm than good, but uh, they did. And so now we know that that is there. We are, they are challenging this in court and um, hopefully, you know, we'll come down uh, with something a little bit more reasonable when the dust settles, you know, because obviously sex trafficking is a bad thing and it's something we definitely want to take steps to prevent and curb as much as possible. We just have to be careful how we do it. Okay. Uh, wanted to let you know that the third edition of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons will be hitting the shelves soon. I just finished some last proofreading on that, and I'm expecting that to come out very soon. If you go to Amazon.com, you'll see that it says it's available right now for pre-order. Uh, they're saying currently October, but it really should be much sooner than that. So if you want to get out there and get your, your fresh copy, you can pre-order it right now. It's uh, If you have the second or first edition, particularly the first edition, uh, this one has a lot more content. It's been updated quite a bit as well to cover uh, the newer operating systems that came out in the last couple of years since the second edition was published. And I believe this version has a, like over 150 tips in it now for things you could do. And most of them are very simple. Most of them are free. Uh, but it's things that most of us just don't think to do or don't understand the significance of and blow off thinking, ah, that won't make that much of a difference. But I'm here to tell you, every little bit helps. And, you know, you know, in the book, I use a lot of analogies. I try to make it as simple as possible and try to explain it in ways that make sense to people that don't have a technical background because it's, it's supremely important. And, it, you know, I like to liken it to things like wearing a seatbelt or putting on sunscreen or brushing your teeth. You know, these are things that we all need to do and on a regular basis that don't, you know, just take a little bit of time, a little bit of effort, but have a really big long-term benefit. And uh, that's kind of the nature of most of these tips, to be honest. It's little things. All these things add up. 
And there are simple things we could all be doing that would make us so much more safe. And uh, that's what this book is about. So anyway, check that out. The third edition is coming out soon. I've got some more great interviews coming up shortly. And some obviously we'll keep you up to date on all the things that are going on that you need to know about and tell you what to do about those things. So uh, tune in again next week. Tell your friends. Pass the word. Uh, the more people we can get um, inoculated with this sort of information and following these best practices, the safer we will all be. So uh, with that in mind, uh, stay safe out there. And as always, until next week, don't get caught with your drop down.